I almost had a little bit of a funny breakdown as a chef of what am I doing? What am I doing to people? And how can I be conscious of that? And you know, people want fried food, people want dessert. I did a cool thing yesterday, a slurry of Himalayan tartary buckwheat. I've got all this fiber from the Himalayan tartary buckwheat and no spike. So now I'm making braises, dusting with Himalayan tartary buckwheat instead of white flour in the restaurant. So I'm constantly thinking about food and how can I manage it? I'm Ben Grenell, part of the early startup team here at Levels. We're building tech that helps people to understand their metabolic health, and this is your front row seat to everything we do. This is a whole new level. Food is a really deep topic. It's also a very personal one. And when we tend to talk about food, well, it's usually from the perspective of a nutritionist. Well, Paul Canales, he's head chef and owner of a restaurant called Duende, located in Oakland. He's also a member of Levels. When he started using a CGM over a year ago, well, his relationship and his lens in the way that he created dishes, the way he prepared dishes, it changed drastically. He started to get insight into the way that the food that he was making and preparing well, the impact that it would have on the metabolic health of those he was serving. And so Paul's journey with food has continued to evolve over the past year. He started incorporating more things like fasting. He started to think about when is it okay to indulge and if you are going to indulge, how can you change the way that you approach it? It's not that we want people to ever go through the cycle of deprivation. They shouldn't just stop doing things altogether. But it's important to know that there are different avenues and different choices that can be made, very much individual ones and personal ones, when people start to think about the way that they can consume food differently to optimize their own metabolic health. It was a really fun conversation to have with Paul and to hear some of the tips and tricks about the way that he prepares food and even some of the ways that people can prepare their own food as they evolve their journey with metabolic health. Here's where we kick things off. So we've got you here, owner, head chef of Duende in Oakland. So very much focused on tapas and small plates, Spanish and Basque inspired cuisine. It's interesting because we talk to a lot of people about food, like whether there are members or whether they're nutritionists, but your lens on food is so different being a restaurateur. So you create food, you design food, you think about it differently. And so it'd be interesting to dig into this idea of how your lens might have evolved once you started to see data that was associated with basically everything that you've spent your life and your career doing and building. Yes, man. And, and there's two things. One, starting with levels, of course, it's all insight. And eventually, once you get to a certain place, you can get to optimization, but there's so much insight. So I'm going through this personally. And it's such a weird feeling because you're, you have a look at what's actually happening in your body. And you know how Peter Atia talks about that disconnect between your intentions and what you actually will do. And yeah. then you need the accountability to actually show you that. Well, it felt like I was a foreign object or something. I was, it was very strange because again, I think about food all the time and my goal in all in my cooking at the restaurant is always 
the sustainability, the quality of my products. It's, it's all getting the very best food in the service of the very best dining experience. So first and foremost is obviously the flavor and, you know, then how these things are made and the techniques involved and, and your creative inspiration and, and all these things come into play. But ultimately you're thinking about this in terms of people's dining experience, not what you might be doing to their health or your health along the way. Um, so the first thing that came up was, uh, you know, thinking about what, what do I do with these things that I eat? Because I'm seeing these crazy spikes and, and, or, or just sustained levels of higher blood glucose, not even necessarily a big spike, but maybe something sitting around at 114, 115 for, for a couple of hours. Um, and, and, and then seeing some things like a big sandwich with a wild, beautiful roll, you know, for East, that was my Easter last year. We had, we went and did a big picnic and had this big sandwich that lasted actually about a day and a half of, of elevated levels because of, there was so much bread in that. And again, I was, I didn't, my, my metabolism wasn't in a great place to handle that. So it wasn't just the spike in these elevations. So I thought about this a lot. And when I started doing experiments and talking with Brandon McCarthy a lot via email, I started doing a lot of experiments on my challenges. So for example, what would happen if I took cooked beans? So I, you know, whether I cook them or whether they're a can of beans, there's a lot of starch in that liquid. And that starch is really valuable from a culinary point of view because it adds a sort of a suaveness to those, to a sauce or a coating that's really amazing. You know, it's really, it's very valuable, but it jacks your blood. Mm. So um, I did I did an experiment uh, where I drained the beans and I, I, I took a cup of beans with their liquid and ate them cold to see what would happen. And then I, I drained the beans and washed them and replaced that amount of liquid by volume with water and ate them. Really big difference. Mm, wow. Radical difference. Now, it would have been easier just to just to take the liquid and drink it and then drink water. But I didn't, I didn't think of that until after I did the experiment. Um, so that was one. Another thing is I learned about through, again, through levels, through your, through your um, little tips that you give us, you know, uh, about resistant starch. Now that's a concept I had no idea about. So I started taking things that, that I might want to eat um, and see what would happen if I treated them with resistant starch. So, there was, I, I, I used whole grain farro, for example. Um, and then I did things with sweet potatoes and regular potatoes and uh, um, chickpea pasta. What would happen if I cooked it and ate it? And then what would happen if I cooked it and then let it sit overnight and then did it, you know? So, so kind of playing with resistant starches and then uh, seeing the impacts of that. An interesting thing, a curious thing that came up about that um, what had to do with dosage. So this is probably something I see this a lot on, on the levels, Facebook page. Um, and dosage is kind of something we don't think about like, Oh, I'm golden. I'm bulletproof. I did this to this thing. Well, if you eat, you know, a whole bunch of it, it kind of doesn't matter. You're going to, you may not get a spike, but you're going to get elevated blood glucose. So I started playing around a lot from a culinary perspective of how to treat these starches. And in some cases it just doesn't matter. So for example, if I make sushi at home 
and I cook sushi rice, you kind of don't want to, you don't want to cool it overnight and bring it back. It won't come back. It doesn't do that. So there's kind of no way to fix sushi rice, for example. But if you cook, say, basmati rice overnight, and then you make something where you're sauteing it with, say, you know, some cumin seeds, and you're going to make a cool little biryani type thing, or maybe some Spanish rice, it works pretty well. But again, it, for me personally, it's dosage. So I start thinking about that. And at the time I'm doing this, my restaurant is closed due to the pandemic. So I'm thinking about what am I doing to people and how can I manage it? Well, in Spanish cuisine, it's pretty easy for the most part because you don't have a lot of pastas or built-in built in starches that you can't, there's nothing I can't control. I don't, mm -hmm. I don't have any, um, any uh, pre-made sauces or, or things that are coming in that I don't know that there's hidden sugars or, or, you know, 20, 20 ingredients all have drin at the end that I don't know what they are. <laughs> Um, so, but, but, but there are things, I mean, you can't make paella without rice. Uh, so what can I do with that? How, could I pre-cook that and make it work? I couldn't really, and have it be good. But what I did start doing is doing a, a resistant faro paella and it's brilliant. So now that's on the menu and it's offered all the time. So if somebody does want to deal with their glucose and have more fiber, because polished rice does not have the aluron layer. It doesn't have the bran, you know, doesn't have any of that stuff that kind of helps you. So you are going to get a kaboom, you know, or at least I would, you know. Yes. And certainly a year ago, I would have gotten a much bigger kaboom than I get now. Um, so, and again, it comes back to dosage. You know, if you need a whole paella or split a paella with somebody, it's going to be different than if you have some or if you, or, or what order you eat your meal in, you know, that's a big deal. So I started playing around with some of this stuff and there are these things we have patatas bravas and they're, they're, they're brilliant. But if I cook the potato a day ahead, which kind of works in my system anyway, and then I fry them, not ideal to be frying food, but you know, it's patatas bravas or that way. So I can, I can, I, I did an experiment. What happens if I cook those potatoes same day and then cook them or if I cook them overnight? Well, one, they're better, they're a better crispy, fluffy in the inside potato if I do it a day ahead. My blood glucose was quite a bit different if I did it the next day. Now it's not night and day. I'm still going to get elevation, and I, and dosage. You know, it keeps coming back to dosage. So can I enjoy that? Well, sure, I can if I preload some fiber and maybe have some vinegar and water before, and I and I and I order my meal in a proper way. But if I just go cold into some patatas bravas. I'm gonna have a problem. So it really affected, I almost had a little bit of a, a funny breakdown, Ben, as a chef of what am I doing? You know, what am I doing to people? And how can I be conscious of that? And, you know, people want fried food, people want dessert, uh, you know, there are things I can do. But there are ways of maneuvering some things now, like for example, with Big Bold Health coming out with their Himalayan tartary buckwheat. So I have a good relationship with them and I've started making things like blinis, little pancakes made with Himalayan tartary buckwheat and almond flour that people are insane for. So I started doing things like that. I just did one. I'll show you a picture. Let's see if I can get it on my phone and, and we can cut this out if you don't like it. But no, I did keep a, it in. <laughs> I did a cool thing yesterday that if you can see what you see here 
on the top picture is a is a slurry of Himalayan tartary buckwheat, and what you see below is a pigeon sauce. So basically, I, I I deglazed the fat off of that pigeon sauce after making it, mixed it with the Himalayan tartary buckwheat to make a roux, and then I thickened the sauce with that. So I didn't have to use a modified starch like arrowroot or potato starch or whatever, nor did I have to make a roux with white flour. You could drink that all day long and your body's going to say collagen, protein, better than bone broth. And I've got all this fiber from the Himalayan tartary buckwheat and no spike. So now I'm making braises, dusting with Himalayan tartary buckwheat instead of white flour Mm, uh, in the restaurant. So there's things like that that are just kind of fun that I've, that I'm bringing into the restaurant. And yeah, so I'm, I'm constantly thinking about food and how can I, if I'm going to blow somebody up, they're going to know it's going to be a pot of creme and they're going to blow up. I mean, but hopefully they've eaten enough. And as, as you know, from working with levels, if you eat dessert after, like after your meal makes sense, you, you have a better chance, you know, especially if it's got some, a good amount of fat in there and things like that. But if it's, if it's not, you're gonna you're probably gonna have an elevated uh, uh, issue, and and we'll deal with it from there. But yeah, so to answer your one question in a super long way, it's it's all consuming and it's super exciting, and it's really fun to see where I am a year later from when I started to where I was because I was not in any kind of shape, you know. So as you've been through or down this path of, we'll call it rediscovery, right? Like re, sort of rediscovering what it sounds like your relationship with food and the way you're thinking about pairing all these different elements, fat and fiber and the starch and protein. When you've been getting this insight, have you been passing it along to your team and then patrons of the restaurant so that they're getting some foundation of like, Hey, we're using, um, we're changing the paella. We're changing the way that we cook. We're offering these different dishes. You can still have like, even let's say bravas, right? So, the way that we used to cook them is this way. Like, let's say it's for your team. We used to cook them where it was just like day of. And now we're doing it overnight so we can get a bit of that resistant starch. And it's not perfect, but it's better than whatever. And then also being able to educate people, hey, if you do want to have patatas bravas, like pair it with some fat or some fiber, some protein so that you can blunt the spike of it. Has has that come into play, this idea of education with, we'll call it education without pontification? Yeah. And, and, and another way to say it is attraction rather than promotion, you know, but that's exactly right. I love education without pontification because that's, that even is more succinct in my world. So when I first started, you know, with levels, as I mentioned, we were closed and I was doing things for world central kitchen, uh, meals for, you know, underserved communities in Oakland. And the, the person that was helping me a couple of days a week was my pastry chef and she has type two diabetes. And, uh, she's, her family, uh, has this, they're from Mexico. They're not eating their indigenous diet. They're eating, you know, heavily processed imported foods into their world. So they, they have a lot of issues with that and her family particularly. So here I am, she's wondering what I'm doing with my phone, you know, on my, on my arm. So I tell her about it and I start to explain what's happening and she's, her eyes get huge. So that was my first kind of educational moment. Well, then when we opened, I, some of my cooks are with me 
And this is now fast forward over a year because I didn't get open until June of 2021. Um, so uh, I started working. I had been working on several of these changes and insights. So I started talking to my team about it right away. Um, and two of the guys that are my chefs now came back after being gone for three years. So they have no idea what's going on. And so they're like, why are we doing that? And why are we doing this? So I'm educating them. And there, and then, you know, like with the buckwheat, that happened in the middle of 2021. So they already saw that being brought in and now they love it. They're totally excited and experimenting, as is my pastry chef, with taking white flour out and how much buckwheat can you add back in? Or how much can you deal with almond flour so that we can do this stuff? How much can we work with fat in dessert so that we're trying to blunt some of those spikes? And then also um, educating our server staff. So yeah, I mean, like they want to know why are we making a faro paella? Why would we do that? Well, there's a reason why we do that. And so, yeah, so we're absolutely talking about that. And several people have been interested in, in levels because of it actually, because they're intrigued by it. And now they see me doing it again. So they're well aware of, of, of how the CGM has affected my eating and what I do. And they, they sort of die when we do a paella tester and I load it up with things. They're just like, what are you doing? So I, I always taste it first because we do testers every day of everything. Um, not, not every single dish, but several dishes a day so that we can, you know, it's kind of like doing your warm-up layups. If you're a basketball player, you got to get your shots in because your palate's different. Your body chemistry is different. How you're, how you're wanting salt. If you've exercised, if you drank, whatever it is, is, is always different. So I make the cooks, do something so they can, you know, dial in their palate. Well, when it's a paella tester, I'm, I always have this funny order and then I'll taste it as it is. And then I'll do something to make it so it mitigates what it's going to do to my body. And again, dosage, I'm going to eat just a little bit of it, but um, they're always fascinated by that. So yeah, it does get out. And I talk to the servers about it. And, and so it is a conversation that we, we have now I haven't put anything on the menu that says, you know, glucose friendly or something. Cause actually, as it turns out, most things are, mm -hmm. um, for the most part are not going to do that to your blood. Um, but, but there are items that will definitely do that. Yeah. So we definitely how, educate. How, how have you thought about things? So as a creative, as a designer, as a chef, like that, I mean, that's essentially what you're doing. You're creating, you're designing dishes. You're mm -hmm. thinking through these things. There's certain elements of food that are, harder to get around that being things like texture that being things like flavor profile that being things like mouthfeel so let's use the example of sushi rice the mouthfeel the texture the flavor profiles much different than something like cauliflower rice you can extrapolate this to paella when you're talking about using buckwheat and changing that how, how have you thought about trying to maintain certain things because sometimes it seems that again it's not to generalize and say everyone thinks this, but sometimes people will say, I just can't get my mind around. Um, let's say it was a risotto that was made with cauliflower rice. Yeah. I just can't get my mind around it. Yeah, the cauliflower, it doesn't, it doesn't absorb properly. It don't just feels it. saucy, right? Just don't make it. Just don't so, make that. So my, here's my thing. So <laughs> I'd love that you brought this up. So in the case of, so for example, one thing I didn't tell you, I eliminated bread service. Ah, interesting. So there's no 
bread at your table before you eat. You can't get it here. We don't offer it. We do use bread in a dish. We do have a bun on a hamburger, but we have an option if you don't want that. Uh, we have rice in the paella, but, but you can't order bread to start your meal. There is no bread service. Because what is the worst thing that you could possibly do to yourself when you're sitting down to eat? Start with bread. <laughs> my wife will say, like, I literally, when I started with Levels, my breakfast would be the most delicious one-inch thick grilled or toasted sourdough, artisan-made, organic flour, all the right stuff. And I read somewhere that sourdough has a lower, you know, glue, uh, 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 what's the word? Glycemic uh, index. Glycemic load, yeah, index and load. It's a lie, my brother. It's a lie. So Mary would see me eat this slathered with peanut butter, avocado, and she'd say, there you go. You're having a pound of roux. This is before levels, right? So I see it and I'm like, holy God, I can't do that. So then I come to learn, you know, all the other things we've talked about. So I eliminated bread service. But let's just talk about, say, cauliflower, rice, or sushi, or whatever. So full disclosure, I've been in recovery for almost 30 years. I don't drink non-alcoholic beer. It tastes like garbage to me. I don't need to drink beer. I don't need to drink non-alcoholic beer. I don't need to drink non-alcoholic wine. So guess what? I just don't drink it. I don't care because it's no good. And it doesn't do in my body what I want beer and wine to do, given my particular set of genetics that really likes that and likes the effect of it. Okay, so let's go back to sushi rice. If you love sushi rice, and you're trying to mitigate it, don't. Just just preload, have vinegar, preload with some, you know, what you, one thing that's brilliant before sushi, actually, is a couple handfuls of, of, of pumpkin seeds with the shells on them. Because you're getting some fiber and protein. Maybe, maybe drink a, a, an ounce or two of olive oil, and then have your sushi rice. And then just take the, take the lumps. Don't eat sushi very often, but eat it or have sashimi, forget it. But, it. but if you can't substitute and get the right effect, just don't do it. So don't make risotto, make a delicious cauliflower. There's a million things you could do. You can make amazing cauliflower things that are, that are beyond. But if you need risotto, make risotto once a year or twice a year and just eat it. Do all the things ahead. Make sure you're lifting weights so your, your muscles are ready to absorb, you know, do resistance training, you know, do these things, take a, you know, go for an hour walk or go for a, a 20 minute walk right after, not even five minutes. That's what I found. Do not wait. Like, and, and, you know, if, if the gold standard is a brisk 20 minute walk, right? I mean, I learned that from you guys, but if you can't do that, do the dishes, fold laundry, you know, do something, do some squats for 15 minutes or do something to, to kind of give your body a shot. Just don't eat cauliflower rice if it's not good. You know, I, that's, that's, that's my personal thing. And I, and I have that standard. It's just like, if it's not dope, I'm not eating it. Because the, food is a weird thing. Food is, is not, it's not theoretical. You put it in your mouth and it's really connected to everything. It goes in here and it's up here and there's a pleasure and all that. So if it's not dope, if it's not delicious, just don't eat it. I mean, yeah. That's kind of the key. I mean, I've learned everything I need to learn from an Oreo. You know what I'm saying? I don't need to relearn that lesson. Yeah. If my wife is making a delicious cookie and it's warm. I might, I might, uh, 
I might try to have that once in a while. Um, yeah. And, and food, food is relatively, we'll use air quotes, relatively subjective, right? Like you can't really say, I mean, there are things that are objectively bad. Like you can just have th dishes that are objectively not going to be good. Somebody burns something, there's too much salt, but it's subjective in the fact if somebody's like, I don't really like that. And it's because it's got olives or basil. Let's just like, it's got something in it. Sure. It's subjective. It's like, you can't say it's good or bad. And so 100%. that's where, it, that's where it gets interesting. But curious to go into the, this idea of <clears throat> you're around food all the time as a chef, you are, you, you have to be tasting things or you have people that are tasting things, but that is, that is a dichotomy in every sense with the lifestyle choice of fasting. That's something that you took on. So when you're around all this food and your, your role is to taste this food before it's going out. And especially when you've got feature dishes, things like that, that are new, how have you thought about that where you've it seems like fasting was one of those things that really made a mean it was a meaningful change in your life from what i know of of the experience you had with it but you sort of had to make this choice of i'm going to fast i'm going to do it regularly but i'm around food all the time what did that look like right so that's a brilliant question and i'm glad you you mentioned it because people should know and i see it on the facebook page and i I've got to start engaging more. I, after about a month and a half, I want to say, or two months with levels, I just couldn't get a breakthrough. I was too insulin resistant without knowing it. I was too overweight. Whatever it was, I could not get the breakthrough. So I did a weekend of 24-hour fasting where I ate Friday night, 6 o'clock or whatever, and, or 5 o'clock, 5.30, and I didn't eat again until Saturday night at 5.30. And then I did it again to Sunday. And then Monday, things calmed down for the first time. I started seeing that more stable thing that you're looking for. So then I started, so now I do that at the end of every month or beginning of every month. But then I started getting into 12 hour and then 16 hour. Now I'm doing 18 hour. So what I, so the, so the key is to build my time when I need to be tasting food into those six hours. Pretty easy for me. So again, it, it starts with awareness and, and kind of paying attention what you're putting in your mouth. So you've got to look at your mindfulness and this goes into meditation and you know, all those things kind of being aware of what you're doing and noticing when you're really hungry and when you're not really hungry, that's how you get from, regular eating to 12 to 16 to 18 if you want to do that well it works differently for everybody but it requires a great deal of mindfulness because oftentimes you're dehydrated when you think you're hungry and or you're bored or there's something like that but here it's just lazy habit there's food around and you're looking at it you're making something so like for example yesterday i showed you that pigeon sauce i've got to make that in the morning so and i'm going to taste it as i go but I'm, again, I'm not going to do anything there that's going to impact my fast. I mean, there's some caloric value to less than a teaspoon of tasting that, but it's nothing that's going to really impact anything. And there's nothing there that's carbohydrate that's really going to mess me up. Anything that's going to get into that part of the day, for me, I've built into my schedule at work. So testers always come up at 4.30 in the restaurant. Well, that's well within my window. So I'm going to 
before I do those testers, I'm going to drink a big glass of water with, you know, a tablespoon of apple cider vinegar in it. I might eat, pop a handful of, of, of pumpkin seeds, and then I'm going to do that. So there is this, and oftentimes most of what's coming up is not going to be an impactor. But sometimes, like yesterday, we did an arroz negro. It's a black rice, and there's a dessert tester. I had already tasted that, so I don't need to taste that again. Um, but but I'm going to have some of that black rice. So it's back to that thing we spoke about earlier about how am I going to pair it? What's the dosage? I just need to taste it. I don't need to make a meal out of it. Um, and that's a big difference for me. So it, it really has to do with scheduling my my fasting, my timing around the time of day where I'm going to have to taste things that normally I might not be eating. Um, so that's really important. So if, for example, if it's a birthday and there's going to be whatever, you know, one of my kids or, you know, I'm at a family get together and there's going to be something like that, I'm going to work my fast so that it's in my eating period and I can, I have the opportunity to preload, which I, again, I, I learned from you guys. I never knew that term. It's brilliant. So I can preload and, and, and blunt that spike. But if I walk into it hungry and I have, I don't have anything in my stomach, I'm dead even with eating dinner before. But oftentimes eating dinner at someone else's house, for example, there's going to be a corn salsa. There's going to be, you know, there's kind of no way. I mean, you could if you wanted to be significant about it, but this happens only a few times a year. So usually I'll, I'll participate in whatever people are making. I don't have a lot of endothelial problems or, you know, celiacs or, you know, gut problems that, that would cause me, you know, um, uh, any, any diseases that were, if I ate something, I would really be in trouble, you know, dairy allergy or anything like that. Just don't need a lot of it. But, um, so for me, it's more of a, an indulgence, but to get the fasting, I really work within the hours I'm eating and build my day around my work schedule so that I'm doing that. But like, for example, yesterday, there were probably 10 things I could have tasted, tried, enjoyed that would have been fast breakers if I decided to do it didn't need to, wasn't part of my creative day. It wasn't part of my responsible day to taste things. And, and it's just, you just don't do it. So here, here's the question for you as the chef of a restaurant, th this idea of people say they, they get on this health and wellness journey. So you, like, you've got such an interesting lens because like you're the member, but you're also the, the person that serves food to the members. And this Challenge comes up very frequently when we talk to different members or just anybody who's going through levels or trying to change their lifestyle choices and habits. And they say, well, everything's going great. Like I'm at home. I've got it dialed in. I know what I'm making. I can control that. And then there's this sense of, we'll call it maybe ambiguity is a good word or feeling maybe a little bit overwhelmed to go out because the lens is, well, I just don't know what the restaurant's going to make. Like, I don't know what all the things are made with. Hmm. And, and the same thing goes to your example of like eating corn salsa. You go to somebody's house, they serve dinner. What's sort of your lens on, on that? Is it like, do you have any advice for people that are thinking about how can I maintain, maintain the path I'm on? and still eat out at restaurants? Is it about choice or is it about giving 
yourself the wiggle room and saying like it's okay like do it kind of like the the paella example mm-hmm. or pie or risotto i think you said yeah where you're like just do it like do it do it a couple times a year just like don't crush paella or don't crush like risotto four times a week like that's not yeah. gonna do you any good is that yeah. what, what's sort of your lens for people your advice as a chef and as a member well i'll tell you i'll tell you exactly what i do because i eat in my own restaurant and i, <laughs> I will blow myself up occasionally um or or, or, you know, we go out and eat and, and we don't go to, we don't eat a lot just as full disclosure. I'm not really a foodie in the sense that I've got to eat at the latest new restaurant and all of that, because actually that kind of, you mentioned as a creative, you have to be really careful to manage your creativity by not eating in restaurants at your caliber, because you'll end up copying no matter what you do. Mm. I see guitars in the background. So I just, I just recorded a couple of albums and I will not, one was a reggae album and one is a punk album. And I didn't listen for the last six months to either of those while I was writing because otherwise I'm going to end up ripping off Bob Marley or do whatever. So, but, but, so the point is you have two, there are two ways to approach it. One is you're going to go and you're going to make the best choices. So you're going to see, you're going to, let's say you go to a Thai restaurant, you can figure out, and by looking at the menu and also talking to people about the, your server, what kind of sugars might be in things. Uh, pod thai is obviously rice noodles. Um, but you can kind of work your way around because it's a pretty fresh cuisine. It's a pretty fresh cuisine. And if you're going to get a little bit of sugar in a vinegar or something, it'll be pretty small. So let's say in that your strategy might be you're doing all the things you're supposed to be doing. So eating properly, we're exercising properly, but you're going out. So let's say you're going to, you know, you're, you're going to be careful and, and you're not, it's not a splurge night. You're, it's not. So there, there are two things. One is you're regularly going out and you're going to choose. So make the best choices you can. And, and, and don't be afraid to ask questions. You don't have to be sort of militant and say, is there any sugar in anything? I mean, that's kind of, <laughs> you know, that's kind of impossible, but you can make choices. And, and you can kind of arrange your meal so you're eating a, a mango salad or you're eating something beforehand, you get into your other thing. So, so you, you sort of try to set that up in, in a handful of pumpkin seeds or some vinegar before is not going to hurt you. So that's a, good, that's a good way to do it. You're making choices around. When I come to my own restaurant sometimes, um, if my wife wants to split a Duende burger, um, I'll probably have that bun but I'm going to skip the chips on the side and I'm going to ask for a big arugula salad in my own restaurant. They, they know I'll do this. Um, or, or I'll make sure whatever I'm eating before, if, if there are patatas bravas on the table, I might have one or two chunks of potato, but that's going to be it. Cause I'm choosing in that model. Let's take, let's take option number two. And the classic one is Thanksgiving dinner. Um, but let's say you're going out to a meal like that where, you're going to a prefix dinner somewhere. You're not really in control of your meal. It's a it's an eleven course tasting menu. There's dessert. You know, let's just say it's it's or you're going to Thanksgiving dinner or Christmas dinner or or something where there are these trigger foods. Unless you have health issues, and I, I can't speak to that. I mean, do everything you can do to set yourself up, and remember, everything you're doing hopefully you're getting some level of me- metabolic flexibility. Hopefully you're not so rigid in your diet that when you do eat a carbohydrate of some sort, you're not losing your mind. 
So I think it's important. And again, Peter Atia talks about this. It's imp- like when he has somebody go in for a glucose test, like the Coca-Cola test, mm-hmm. he makes sure they eat some carbs before. Cause if they're on a super low carb diet or not eating any, their, their, their scores, they lose their mind. Mm-hmm. So he's got to kind of get them set up a little bit, some of his own patients. So it's kind of interesting that to have some metabolic flexibility, your, your article recently on uh, the paleo diet was really brilliant. Um, so, you know, eat some beans without the juices and, 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 and make sure you're getting that metabolic flexibility. So hopefully when you go to Thanksgiving dinner, it won't be as bad as if you walked in, you know, never eating a carbohydrate and now you're having mashed potatoes and gravy that's thickened with flour and, you know, sweet, but candied yams or whatever are around. Um, so if you are going to a meal like that, then I think if you're doing everything you're doing, give yourself a couple days ahead where you are introducing some things that maybe will bring you up a little bit and back down. So your body knows, and it's not so crazy. Resistance training weights to keep your muscles eating glucose, you know, that's very important. And then when you go do the things ahead that you know, you should do, and then enjoy the damn Thanksgiving dinner Mm -hmm. or enjoy the tasting menu. And then the next day, eat something. Don't fast too much. Cause I think fasting long right after something like that, there's a tendency to want to, I've been bad, be good now and don't eat for a day. I don't think that's, I don't think people recommend that. Um, I think you want to eat, get back to your normal thing, eat a little less and give your body a chance to kind of come back to normal. And everybody's different for me. If I did that a year ago, I would have stayed at this plateau quite a bit higher and it might've taken a couple of days to get back down and I would have eaten less and more carefully, but well within my boundaries. Um, now when that happens, it, it probably would go up and down and, and, uh, I'd be back to stable within a day, you know, no problem. Yeah. The, the idea of indulging. Oh, oh and one more thing, just, yeah, uh, just of to remember is it's easy to get, to lose your mind when you first get levels and, and even for a while, because you're looking at it all the time. And really what you guys have stressed and, and, and the aura ring stresses other people, you really want to look at variability over time. And if you can't, you're not going to, if, if, because insulin is so impossible to get a regular thing on because of the washing and all the things that has to happen to it, a reasonable assay is your, is your glucose variability over time. And you get that with levels. So when you're looking at that, that variability, remember that one meal is not going to change everything. So over the last couple months or 90 days, you look at your variability and you're feeling pretty solid. That meal is not that big of a deal anymore. So mm-hmm. sorry to interrupt you, Ben. No, no, not at all. It, it's it's the idea of like we we say this and stress it over and over and over is we never want people to feel a sense of deprivation, right? Indulge in the like you like you said, indulge in going out, indulge in uh, having the Thanksgiving meal, and that's entirely okay. One way of mitigating it is this idea of quantity that you brought up earlier. Where it's like you know, just don't maybe don't have four heaping scoops of potatoes and then the yams and then the stuffing, like have some moderation in the amount, in the quantity. Cause that makes such a big difference where even if you are going to eat something that has a higher glycemic index, it's the, the, and again, everybody is totally different based on metabolic flexibility and, 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 but the, 
the idea of how long that response can last for, right? Like some people have elevated glucose for so long after having something that has a higher load. Um, there might be oscillation. There might not be like some people will have, there's all different shapes to the line, but it's the idea of no matter what you do, if you are going to indulge, it's the idea of getting back to what you're saying about having patatas bravis. It's like not crushing. It's very easy as a human because we can act like dogs with a bowl of food in front of us sometimes, or it's like, give me four plates of those. And it's just like, it's so easy to keep going. Cause those, especially those like you use the adjective brilliant, which they entirely are, but it's like, have a few of them indulge in that, but don't eat four plates of them in one sitting by themselves sort of naked. Cause it's just not, it's not going to help you. <laughs> well, and so, so you just triggered on two things and then I'm going to tell you something insane. You, may, you may know this, you may not, but, but what you just said about mitigating so let's say you have, and you mentioned glycemic load, different than glycemic index, right? So let's say you ha you're eating something with a high glycemic index. Can you lower the load by adding fiber in the context of what you're eating? Um, so let's say we'll go back to a burger, you know, you're eating a burger instead of a, you know, burger and fries and all of that. What if you had a salad right before you ate your burger and you piled up some arugula and you kind of made a glycemic load with your bun different than the glycemic index with the bun would have been, that's another way to do it. And then to get to your point about dosage or amount, this is a crazy thing. And it's a hundred percent true on your palate. After three bites, after three bites, you lose tremendous amount of sensation on your tongue. So if you eat three bites of something really delicious and you want to keep going crazy, you're not really tasting as much what you were doing the way you were when you first started. So your first bite of something is delicious. If you slow down and you have the, and you fully enjoy that, and then you get the next bite, and you fully enjoy that. And then the neck over time, the next bite, you slow down, you'll find you don't need to eat that much of it because your palate has been satisfied. Your, your, your hunger, uh, the savory part of it is satiated. Now you're, you know, whether you're full or not is, is what else you're eating and all of that, but you really don't need to eat a supersized amount of French fries. And, fry, and they're not even good after a little while, <laughs> you know, they're good while they're hot for a little bit. And then you got to start getting them into the ketchup, which has tons of sugar, or you got to dip them in, you know, you, you start doing that, but, but, but a couple fries and you're done. You're done. You're happy. So, so is that, and let us wrap the burger and don't it, eat dirty keto too often. You know, <laughs> is that a nerd, like, is that actually a neurological thing? The idea of like your palate and the way that it's satiated Three after. Three bites. Wow. Yeah. So, and, and it's really something that's very important. I teach my cooks because when they're tasting food all the time, I, your, your, your palate gets totally worn out and you will, if you, let's say, let's say you make a batch of soup. I'm about, I'm about to go make some bouillabaisse for, for a, a, a pop-up dinner next week for a new restaurant that I'm doing that's coming online next month. So I'm going to be making this soup. So I'm going to be tasting it over and over and over again. Well, absolutely clean your palate between bites. Drink some water. 
bubbly water is even better. You ever notice when you get an espresso, they give you a little side of bubbly water? You ever wonder yeah. what that's for? <laughs> it's to clean your palate because the, the carbonation will bubble on your palate and clean it up. So I always have my cooks taste and drink water during their shift because one, if they're not hydrated, they're going to think they want more salt in everything or they're going to be hungry. And, and that's a disaster. And your palate is much more sensitive when you're, when you're full than when you're hungry. Cause you will, you're trying to fill, you're filling up too many things. And, and all of a sudden you're, you're making food that's way too salty. You would have no idea because you tasted it too many times. So if I make this bouillabaisse, I'm going to taste it. I'm going to clean my palate. I'm going to adjust and then I'll taste it again. But I have literally ruined five gallons of soup by tasting it too often and it finally tastes right. And someone tasted it like, oh my God, it's like a salt lick. This was early in my career because I tasted it too often. Yeah, you get worn out. You can't, three bites, man. And, and, and slowly, and then you can really enjoy it. And you find out that from a taste perspective, you've done well with it. You don't need to keep going with it. And the same thing happens with sweet food, you know, sweet things. Yeah, I mean, you, you get the, you kick the endorphins up, you get the, you start losing your mind, your body kicks into that thing. But if you slow down and you really taste it and really savor it and make every bite of meditation, as my cousin Lily says, then next thing you know, you're, you're pretty happy with a nice little reasonable scoop of mashed potatoes and gravy and, and, and the things that might, might send you insane because you don't need that much of it. And salt is a one-way door decision, as it would be known, where it's not one of those things where you can undo salt. It's like cooking meat. Cooking meat is a one-way door decision. Once it's cooked, you can't, can't uncook it. And from a culinary point of view, it's really important. Salt concentrates. It doesn't, you can't cook it off. Same thing with acid. So if you make a precipitant of acid in a solution, it doesn't go anywhere. So if you adjust something with vinegar or you adjust something with wine when you're cooking and you reduce it, it's going to concentrate. It doesn't lose. Same thing with salt. It concentrates. Great example is when you're making a braise. If you're braising lamb shanks or something at home for the home cooks, you know, taste, but learn, you know, season, but understand that when you taste that salinity in the broth before as you're cooking it, you're going to reduce that down to get that suave coating, that delicious flavor. So you only want half the amount of salt uh, in your mouth. Learn what that tastes like because you're going to reduce it by half. So yeah, you're exactly right. These are precipitants. They, they don't, they, you, you can't lose it. You can't. And then you get into that problem of, oh God, how do I, do I make more of it? Or one trick, if you do that with the soup, throw a couple of potatoes into it and, and it will kill the salt. But now you just jacked your glycemic. So, you know, let's go to this last thought of, as you have reestablished a new relationship with food, have you started to explore new categories or new cuisine types sort of outside of the restaurant, just as a creative, like as a creative professional, as a person in the world, have you looked at food differently where it's made you maybe more creative in the lens of the way that you're going about, I don't know, try to pair things together. I just had this conversation with my wife yesterday. So, uh, uh, she had this great idea for dinner, lunch on Sunday. It was brilliant. And, and it was basically, we made a, 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 a salmon salad, you know, all the good stuff in it, um, uh, and, and put it into romaine lettuce boats. 
and that was lunch and and it was delicious so we had some salmon salad left over and i i made some uh and it's on my levels i got a 10 out of 10 yesterday thank god but it was the salmon salad and instead of having boats i made you know opposing layers of the lettuce so i had sandwiches so i had a couple of salmon sandwiches salmon salad sandwiches with lettuce and as i was leaving the house i said to my wife wow i said you know in the old days that would have been a couple slabs of roux of delicious artisan made organic sourdough or i would have wrapped it all up in a tortilla so you mentioned other cuisines so yeah so for example we i love mexican food i'm in california we eat a lot of it so we have converted a burrito a big burrito into burrito bowls and the burrito bowls are 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 don't don't do the way we eat it and if we do have a chip it might be a chip or two that we're getting with it but yeah so we've reconsidered all that stuff if we make a stir fry i've tried shirataki noodles and shirataki rice i love them my wife does not like them they're too squeaky for her my kid kid my mom well, now my kids are older but they didn't love the the texture of them um so we just make a stir fry and you know we kind of don't seem to need to re eat the make the rice so exploring all these cuisines where there is something that we want to avoid or something we're not really into, and it's not really essential, you kind of don't need a burrito bowl with a ton of a ton of rice. And you don't need it with corn. And you don't really need it with a bunch of um a bunch of refried beans for sure, because that that's gonna blow you up right there. I mean, you've just now made a dosage of this into a dosage of that, even though it's the same amount because you've smashed it all together. So th these things are all able to be done. But yeah, I find myself exploring all this stuff constantly and looking for ways. Oh, one great thing is uh, my wife started the whole pound of roux thing when I would make pasta at home. She'd say, God, I feel like I just ate a pound of roux and I'm just like chowing this pasta. This is before levels, of course. Um, so now I'll make this Himalayan tartary buckwheat pancake in a larger format, say like that, and serve the ragu on top of that or a braise instead of with mashed potatoes or something. And you get something to sop up the juices and it's delicious. So yeah, there's a lot of exploration into other cuisines. How can I, can I use monk fruit syrup? Monk fruit maple syrup is actually pretty good in the place of brown sugar in Thai cooking. Um, it's it's pretty good as a sweetener if you need a little bit of sweetening. Um, so I, I like the maple syrup better than the straight monkfish. Uh, sorry, monkfish, monk monk fruit syrup because it, it's not as sweet and it kind of has a little better balance of flavor from a culinary perspective for me. But um, yeah, so there's a lot of there's a lot of exploration into other cuisines and things, and then finding what is the issue and then eliminating it. Very, very cool. You got to try it. You got to get on the cauliflower fried rice, egg fried rice. If you're making Asian cuisine. Yeah. I really, it's good. It's really good. Oh, it's great. We do it all the time. It's great. Yeah. It turns out the, the texture, the mouthfeel, everything about it is good. You still get, especially because <clears throat> that dish typically the rice in that dish is typically pretty broken apart. Like there are so right. many elements to it that you don't like from a texture standpoint, from a mouthfeel and then from a flavor profile, it's pretty darn close. It's a pretty good substitute. So do you, 
Do you uh, saute your cauliflower ahead to really dry it out? Well, we buy the pre-ground cauliflower rice because yeah, it's like just Trader Joe's or something. Y- yeah, 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 yeah. It's cooked, right? Yeah, it's, it's just fro- me- it's cooked and then frozen. Let me give you a cool tip. So I've done this. I made a cauliflower pizza dough um, for Big Bold Health, and they use that. And I found when I first did it, following the general recipes, is it was really mushy, and it wasn't. It just it wasn't perfect. So one of the keys to fried rice is you cook the rice a day ahead. You don't use same day rice and you let it dry out and it gets kind of crumbly and, and they're uh, not crumbly, but uh, it breaks up and it's kind of hard and weird. And then you saute it and then you make the fried rice. That's the trick. So I did something similar to what you're talking about. I didn't make fried rice. I made like this Middle Eastern rice with cauliflower rice and it was brilliant, but I sauteed it quite a bit and dried it out quite a bit before I started adding the other ingredients and it had a, a really great texture. It wasn't in any kind of soft. It actually was kind of crunchy in a way. Um, and it worked out really well. So sauteing the rice ahead of the, the, the cauliflower rice ahead of time, like you can, do you thaw it out when you, when you use it? Uh, some, t- it depends on the dish, but I've, I've only done it with, uh, I'll break it up and start sauteing it from frozen. And it's amazing. It's brilliant. Just a little bit of like either olive oil or avocado oil or something. It's really brilliant. And you just saute, saute, saute and get a a light caramelization. Then when you start, it's obviously not going to reabsorb everything. And it it does have a wonderful flavor, but I haven't made fried rice with it. I need to do that. Uh, You have to do it. (laughs) There's your weekend project right there. (laughs) Yes, I will absolutely do it because I've been dying for some fried rice. Looks like you're in the restaurant right now, or yeah, I, am. I haven't been to the restaurant, and I'm get I don't live in the Bay Area, but it looks like you're on a loft. Yeah, I'm in the uh, mezzanine. Exactly. There you go. There you go. Look at that. <laughs> <laughs>